Okay, we want to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. And I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1. We've been considering this great passage in Ephesians 1, really the first 14 verses. Um, primarily, we've been looking at verses 3 through 14. And this is where the Apostle Paul provides for us a, a view of salvation from God's vantage point. And that vantage point is from the heavenly places. I think they want me a little louder, so I'm going to try. And that is from the heavenly places. And that is a revelation of the mystery of God's will. And that covers uh, the eternities, uh, the past and the future, as well as the present historical now. And we've noticed that the passage is Christ-centered, even though it's developed along a Trinitarian, um, um, it's developed along a Trinitarian way. We see the Father choosing and predestined, uh, predestining His people. We see that the redemption is through the blood of the Son, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and all that in, in the Trinitarian way. And yet we also see that it's Christocentric or it's centered upon Christ. And this is really particularly obvious when you notice the repeated prepositional phrase, in Him, in Him. And we noted, I think, maybe in the first or second uh, sermon from this passage that uh, 15 times, I believe it is, no, it's, uh, yeah, 15 times in the first 14 verses, either by title or name, uh, Christ is, is repeated. The name of Christ is repeated, either in title or, or name. And so this, this Christocentric nature is really seen in that prepositional phrase, in Him, and each time the antecedent to Him is speaking about Christ. And so it really becomes obvious that Christ is the center of this passage. We notice the content of these verses is uh, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that we, the saints of God, are blessed uh, in Christ in the heavenly places. James Boyce notes that we meet a vast array of doctrines, and we've looked at that uh, list of doctrines. We listed out some of those, those doctrines that are these blessings that we have. And we also noted that in this list of doctrines, there are many of what we might define as the doctrines of grace or what Sometimes some of those are found in what we call a TULIP. Uh, if you've heard the word TULIP or the acronym TULIP, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I've also noticed the purpose of the passage is it's not apologetic. It's not a defense. It's not written as a defense. But rather it's written as a doxology. It's written as a matter of praise. And that's uh, really what this whole, for these first few verses are. Uh, it's, it's really not even written as a basis for practical godliness so, so much uh, as it is just this matter of he's just praising God. Paul is just simply praising God. Um, and interestingly enough, in our confession of faith, in chapter 2, paragraph 3, when it talks about the doctrine of the Trinity, we talked about this recently in our small group, 
But you read the last clause in the doctrine of the Trinity, and it talks about how that great doctrine is a matter of comfort for the believer. And you read chapter 3, paragraph 7, on the doctrine of God's decrees. It says that this doctrine of this high mystery of predestination shall afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation, abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So we've been we've we've looked at matters in a sort of a, a general way. We've 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 had the telescope out, sort of just surveying the heavens in some ways, and we've we've pulled the microscope out a little bit. But I want us to pull the microscope out even more today, as we begin to look at individual jewels here. And today we want to look at verse 7, and we want to look at this matter of redemption uh, through Jesus Christ and His blood. So look at verse number 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So let's pray together and ask for God to bless us as we begin to consider that statement. Holy Father, we do come before you now through the name of Christ our Lord. We pray for grace that our eyes may be opened, that we may consider this great statement of redemption through Jesus Christ our Lord. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to comprehend the depth, the breadth, the length of the love and the grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Now we noted already that the Apostle Paul in this verse develops the work of Christ in redemption or in salvation along two different lines. Even though they're closely knit together, yet they are separate lines. And that's the way I'm approaching this, this verse. And hopefully we'll try to preach this verse along two different lines. And that is that redemption that he mentions first in verse number 7 is through His blood. And then he mentions forgiveness of our trespasses, which is a second line that is according to the riches of His grace. So we have redemption according to His blood. That's one line. And forgiveness of trespasses, which is another line, which is according to the riches of His grace. Now again, as I mentioned, we've already paid some attention to this. Redemption is delivery from penalty and power of sin. And that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of trespasses has to do with being cleansed from the guilt and stain of sin. And that's according to the riches of the grace of God lavished upon us. Now, if you look in your hymn book, 
the hymns of grace, for example, hymn number 209, I think Augustus Top Lady does a great job of bringing both of these strands together in a hymn that most all of you, I'm sure, know well, and that's Rock of Ages. But you see, both of these strands of the blood of redemption and the grace of forgiveness brought together in this one hymn. I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but he's weaving these two strands together. And I think, really, coming from this verse probably. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now, he's, he's, he's already weaving the two things together right there. The two matters of, of redemption and forgiveness. Of the guilt of sin and the power of sin. He's bringing them together. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and Thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross that blood I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Help us look to Thee for grace. Here's that, that other part. The cross, the grace. The cross, the grace. The blood and then the grace. Um, foul I to Thy fountain fly. He needs cleansing. He needs forgiveness. He needs cleansing. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And so, top ladies bringing these two strands together. Um, redemption through the blood of Christ and then the cleansing through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, redemption denotes a release that's brought about by a payment or a price that's been paid. And that setting frees us from a situation that one is in that he's powerless to achieve on his own. So one is purchased from a situation that they're in that they're not able to free themselves from. Forgiveness literally means a dismissal, a sending away. So on the one hand, redemption denotes that you've been freed from something you could not free yourself from. Forgiveness literally means a dismissal or a sending away. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. One is to be freed from something. The other is to be uh, delivered and from it to be separated from you, to be sent away from you. And that's how far He separates his, our sins from us. Now our focus today is going to be on this first part, that we have redemption through His blood. I know that you probably, like I, just, you just get happy feet, don't you, when you get junk mail. Whether it be snail mail or your email box just fills up. You know, you can do a search one time for something, whatever the something may be, and your email box will just fill up with solicitation on that particular whatever it was you searched for. And uh, it's like, good grief. And then in a 
couple of days, you'll be getting stuff in the mail, in the, you know, if it's snail mail. Uh, you know, you do a search on a solar panel, for example, and all of a sudden you're getting material from solar panel people, or you're getting it in the email, and you just, if from everywhere, here it comes. And you get all kind of happy, don't you? Because your mailbox is full of it. And almost as good as that are telemarketer calls. I mean, where you can't use your phone because of telemarketer calls. I think sometime that if Congress wanted to improve their 20% you know, uh, uh, approval rate, and I don't know who those 20% of people are, but every time I hear somebody in, in the Congress say, you know, citizens, Americans want this, I think, how do you know what we want? Apparently you don't. But anyhow, I think if you really wanted to improve your approval rating, pass a law that makes junk mail illegal or, or telemarketer calls. Do something to, to dissuade that. Then you could approve, then you could improve your approval rating. Anyhow, you get, you get all kind of stuff, and in that mail you get you get mail that says, you're a winner. And don't you get really happy when you get that mail? And you go run into your spouse and look, hey, we won. We're rich, look. Let's go to Hawaii. Well, no, you don't, because you know as well as I know that that means nothing. But printed in large print, usually on the outside of the envelope somewhere, it reads like you've won something fantastic. But the fine print tells you, you know, you haven't really won anything. But you may be eligible to win if you qualify. And the chances of winning really are like 10th to the 8th power. I don't know, like one in a billion or something like that. But you got to qualify to win, and then you're then you might win. Possibly. Well, that's not really very good news, is it? That's not what I would call good news. You have a chance to qualify to possibly win. Well, that's analogous in some ways. I think, really, very analogous to what we might call the popular gospel of today. And that is that everyone has a chance to be saved. Everyone has a chance to be saved. And that the atonement that Jesus made, the redemption that He made on the cross, really is no redemption at all, but it's only a hypothetical redemption. He died that you have a chance. Well, what are the odds of that chance? I think there's like eight, you know, 8 billion people in the world today. So what are your chances? One in 8 billion? I don't know. So what are they figuring the chances here? I got one in 8 billion chances of being saved. But then you start thinking about chances and then you realize if it's by chance... There's all kind of variables that I have no control over. Like, where was I born? What time frame was I born? 
was I born in a Christian family? Was the gospel translated into the language where I was born? What if it was, and then the day I decided I wanted to go hear the gospel, it, they had a snowstorm and I couldn't get through. And I decided that's not worth it. There's all kind of variables you have to start figuring into this thing. I mean, I'm sure if you've ever been in any, some bad situations risen in your life, you've ever been in an accident, for example. Did you think back and go, you know, if I had done this instead of that, or if I had in a second this way instead of that way, that wouldn't have happened. What were the odds? What's the chances of that? Well, we believe in divine providence and the sovereignty of God and not chances. But when you take the redemptive work of Christ and you make it a mere chance proposition, you go, well, what are the chances? And then you try to ask a person, well, what are the chances? What are the variables you have to start working on and figuring here? And you, you drive yourself crazy with that. And you say, well, Jesus died for the sins of everyone, therefore everyone is redeemable. But he really didn't actually redeem anybody. He just made them redeemable. But he didn't redeem them. He just put them in a redeemable position. But what does redemption depend on then? And there's not much gospel then in that gospel. Well, there is a good news gospel. And the good news gospel is not the sweet steaks gospel. The sweet steaks gospel is you've got a chance. The gospel, the good news gospel, is there's a good news. And the good news is, let me, let me back up and, and ask you this. When some of you first heard, or let me, let me say it this way, that a lot of times when people first hear about the sovereignty of God and the sovereign grace of God, we've talked about this before, a lot of times people respond to that with resentment and anger. And it may well have been that some of us here, first time we ever heard of that, that was our response, was we got a little angry toward that, or we resented that. And the first time you ever heard about election, you may have got a little resentful toward that, or I might have got a little resentful toward it. And particularly when I heard about atonement, I might have gone, oh. And most of the time when you talk to people about the doctrines of grace, what is the one, what is the one they have real problems with? Or you might, have a, you might have a little struggle with. Which is the one most people really struggle with? It's, it's the atonement. It's the atonement. Good. Wait a minute. I thought he died, so everybody had a chance. And were you offended by that? Are you offended by that? Well, you know, the Apostle Paul anticipated our objections because a lot of people object to that. Look over with me to Romans 9 for just a moment. Uh, he anticipated, well, actually the Holy Spirit anticipated we, we would have objections to that. And through the Apostle Paul, he wrote, he wrote about that. This is in Romans 9, 14. 
Uh, I could start back earlier, but I'll start at 14. He's talking about just prior about Jacob. He's loved and Esau he hated. But in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not just? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So, it, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What uh, will that will, excuse me, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he goes on with this statement to Hosea. And so I think a lot of times the problem just comes down to, I want to be God, or I don't think God is fair because God didn't do it the way I, I think I would do it. And he says, who am I to say to God? Why did you do it this way? And then the answer comes back, well, cannot God do what God wants to do? Is he not God? And, of course, the answer is yes, he's God. So, so what happened on the cross? Did Christ actually procure the salvation uh, by redeeming sinners? Or did Christ only make sinners eligible for salvation by a hypothetical redemption? Did he just make it possible or did he actually redeem Is the gospel good news or is the gospel a hypothetical good news? Or let me ask this, can good news be hypothetical? I don't think really good news can be hypothetical, honestly. I think good news, by its mere definition, has to be definite, certain, and not hypothetical. I think a lot of times you find folks that, that struggle with matters, they have believed under a sweepstakes gospel and that sweet state's gospel puts a lot on the center. And at the end of the day, they ask themselves, did I pray hard enough? Is my faith strong enough? Did I do this right? Did I do the other thing right? What if I didn't do it right? And it all comes back to them. 
what if I didn't do it right? And that's a sweet state's gospel because it all lands back on the sinner rather than a good news gospel where it all comes back to Christ. And there is a huge difference in those two things. And Paul in Ephesians 1.7 preaches a good news gospel. It's not hypothetical. And look at what he says. In him, we hope we have redemption. In him, he made redemption possible. In him, we a possibility of redemption. No. In him, we have redemption. Why? Through his blood. Good news is actual. The gospel is not what God might do, but it's what God has done and God will do. Isaiah 40, and I call to worship, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord double for all her sins. Matthew 1.20 But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The Lord didn't make a bid on you. He didn't, it's not going to the highest bidder. And God made a solid bid on you, but you were bought with a price. He redeemed you. So glorify God in your body. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And when shall that reign take place? According to Revelation 22, 5, it's, it's after Christ comes again and all has been, the consummation has occurred. In Revelation 22, 5, it says, and we shall reign with Him because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Read Revelation 22. There it is. It's very clear. And Ephesians 1, 7. In Him... We have redemption through His blood. Now there's three, Greek, three primary Greek words that are used uh, for redemption. And they really tell the story here. And the first word, and each one of them, by the way, adds a, adds a, adds a, adds a dimension and a fullness to the meaning of redemption. And the first one is agorazo. 
if I pronounce it correctly, and I'm sure I didn't. But it's used in 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the emphasis there is a price that Jesus paid for salvation, for your redemption. However, something that's bought excuse me, from the marketplace, and that's the idea of redemption, buying something from the market. And, and if you've never really studied the book of Hosea or Hosea, that is a wonderful picture of redemption where Hosea, Hosea buys his wife that he married who is a prostitute, and she goes back into prostitution, and he buys her back. And that's such a picture of it. Buys her from the marketplace. But somebody that's bought from the marketplace can go, can go back. They can be bought again. They can return like she did. So someone could buy something from the market. It could be sold again. It could go back to the marketplace. But that's what this word uh, uh, agorazo means. It means to be uh, something that's bought, but something bought in the market could be sold again. And then there's the, the next word, and it simply adds a prefix X in front of that word. X agorazo. It's Galatians 3.13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And so it means to buy out and it has the additional thought never to be sold again. You buy out from the market never to sell it again. But you could buy a slave out of the market and the slave would ever, forever remain a slave. So there's that thought. Just because you bought a slave doesn't mean they're not going to be a slave. And then there's the last word, uh, Lutrua which means to loose, to set free, to deliver by a price of a payment, the payment of a price. And that's 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And so here the thought is you're not merely bought, but you're bought not to be sold again, but you're not only bought not to be sold again, but you're freed. And here you're actually made a child of God adoption. That you are bought never to be sold and you're adopted into the family of God. It's interesting there when Peter mentions that you're redeemed not with corruptible things. He mentions gold and silver as, as, as corruptible things. He mentions those as corruptible things. Two precious metals that, that humans think so much of, gold and silver. And you think, well, Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Men risk their lives and have lost their lives to have gold and silver. And he said, but you were redeemed by that which is not corruptible, things like gold and silver which are corruptible. 
You were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. I really would like to just read Hebrews 10, but I won't do it for the sake of time. But it's the whole book of Hebrews, but Hebrews 10 really, really strikes at this. But in Hebrews 10, we read again that being bought by that which is not corruptible by the very blood of Christ, then our sins are remembered no more. And that there is forgiveness. Up until, up until the sacrifice of Christ, sins were remembered every year. Every year. Every year there was atonement. The, the high priest would make atonement every year. Why did he do that? Why did he make a sacrifice every year? Because the sacrifice that was offered never atoned for the sins. It never did it. That's what he says in, in, the, in Hebrews 10. That point's made. It never made atonement for the sins. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for the sins. But Christ came and He made one offering. And by one offering, the sins were forgiven. They were atoned for. And there's a difference. And He says, it's by the blood of Christ, through His blood, that we have redemption. And then that basically is my last point here. And that brings us to the actuality of redemption because it's through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of passages in the Bible that, that point out Christ's suffering as a ransom that results in the redemption of these people. But the point of these texts, and I could point out a dozen to you, but the point of these texts uh, and and many others besides what I had listed here, is that payment is made for the redemption of God's elect, His sheep, that Christ came, He said, and He gave His life for His sheep. And the point of that is the debt and the charges against them are not simply canceled, they're paid for. Christ paid for them by His blood. He saves us not merely by an edict. He saves us not merely by waving a scepter. He saves us not simply by His moral example. He saves us by His blood. And so redemption is not a game of blackjack. It's not a game of... It's not a, it's not a chance. But it's by the blood of Christ. During the, during the Napoleonic Wars from 1803 to 1815, men were conscripted into the French army by a lottery system. If your name was drawn, you had to serve in the army. Unless, unless you could get someone else to go in your place. On one occasion, a man was served papers to report to the army. And when they came and served the papers, telling him he needed to report, he, his response was, um, I was killed two years ago. And they thought, the guy's crazy. 
or he's trying to pull the wool over our eyes. I mean, what, what's his what's his racket? But he insisted. I was killed two years ago, and the papers will prove it. And they began to search, and sure enough, he had been drafted earlier. Not well, they had come to draft him earlier, and he had a good friend that said to him, you know, you have a family, you have children, um, people that you're responsible for. I, I, I don't have anybody. I don't, I'm not married. I have nobody to provide for. Let me take your name and go in your place. And it was agreed that's what would happen, and he did. And he was killed in action. And so when they came back to the same man, and to serve him, he said, no, I've already been killed. And um, so they referred it to Napoleon. This is, this is actual stuff. And they referred it to Napoleon. And Napoleon said, well, actually, he, yeah, that's the law of the land. And uh, he, his time's done. He doesn't have to serve. It's legally done. That's actually what happens in redemption. Christ actually died in our stead. It's, he kept the law perfectly. He lived a perfectly obedient life. And my sinfulness is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to me. He died by his blood we are redeemed. And that's why we can't talk about a hypothetical uh, redemption. He actually died for the sins of his people. And a lot of times when we talk about redemption, we, we'll say things, and it's true, we'll say things like, I don't want justice, I want mercy. Don't give me justice, give me mercy. And I, I understand that, and I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm the same way. But sometimes we can say that so much that people don't appreciate the justice of the cross. And before you see the love of God at the cross, according to Romans 4, you, you ought to see the justice of God at the cross. Because written in huge big letters over the cross is the justice of God. Why did Christ die on the cross? For the justice of God. To pay the penalty of sin. For whom? If He pays for everybody, if it's simply hypothetical, then no one's saved. Well, that's not just. If He pays for my sins and I die and go to hell, well, that's not just. But this is a substitutionary sacrifice that He makes. And what's just is, He paid for my sins. I'm redeemed by His blood. And justice demands and cries that He paid for my sins. Then I live through Him. That's justice. And that's also grace, by the way. And I do receive grace. Well, I was going to get into other matters here, but I'm going to leave it off there. I, want, I do want to say this in closing. 
no, I'll be quick with this. My chair's getting hard. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of times people object to these, these, these matters. And they say, well, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't seem fair and right. And it seems like it limits the love of God and it limits, it limits preaching the gospel to, to people. And you go, oh, no, not really. It actually liberates it. <laughs> and the other, um, the, the sweepstakes gospel, that's the one that really limits it. The hypothetical limits it. A a redemption, a hypothetical redemption that 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 really doesn't fully atone, and that is limited and can be frustrated or annulled or, or negated by chance or by the sinful will of man. That's not much of a redemption. What is that to preach to people? That you... I can preach that Christ died, but by the way, you can annul that. That's not much of a redemption. But then you can preach the mighty power of the blood of Christ that is not annulled by Satan or sinful man or by the grossest of sins. And that's what gives me great joy and liberty in preaching because number one, I know a little bit about myself and the grossness of my own sinfulness. And I know something about the darts of Satan and how he can come to us and say, well, now, who do you think you are? And are you sure? And he can cause me, it's, it's good to be introspective. Don't misunderstand me. Introspection is good to a point. But when you take your focus off of Christ and then begin to wonder, well, I wonder if I did this or I did that enough. Oh, well, introspection has gone the wrong way. Then I'm back into the sweepstakes gospel game. I've taken my focus off of Christ who is more than good enough. His blood is more than sufficient enough. And I need to go back to top lady. I need to go back to nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I've got no goodness. Never claimed I had any. I have no righteousness. Never claimed I had any. And if I think I have any, I'm deceiving myself. I don't have that. But what we do have is, is a more than sufficient Savior whose blood is more than sufficient to separate my sins far, far away from me and they're hidden in the depths of the deepest sea. And my, my redemption 
It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. The question is, is that sufficient? And the answer that we give from our position is yes, it's more than sufficient. It's, it's 10 to the 8th power as many times as you want to more than sufficient for the forgiveness of sins. Of my sins, of your sins, and the sins of as many universes as you want to create. It's more than sufficient. Yes, it's the other that's limited. Our gospel's free. It's unlimited. And I tell you today, if, you, if you're struggling with sin, quit looking at your sin and look to Christ. Because Christ is able to save. And that's who we preach. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for a wonderful Savior and a wonderful gospel. And I pray that people will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that's not fettered by the sinfulness of men, our enemy Satan, our own deeds, but far excels that's great and powerful to the tearing down of strongholds, to the overcoming of sinfulness in in us. And may His name go forth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This time, if you would, please stand.